Good morning. The King is coming. Kind of feels Easter today. We're going to close with a really powerful song today at the end of the service like we used to. Uh, man, I know you'll long await that. Open your Bibles over to the Gospel of Mark. Jesus is making preparation. Goes past that. He begins to go into Jerusalem. I told you, I think, last weekend. He begins to turn the corner as we move toward the cross, as we move toward resurrection, as we complete this book in early September or, or late early fall. What I'd say to you is, he make, as he makes preparations, he, he goes uh, through a couple of villages, and one is Bethphage, which means the house of unripe figs, and that's meaningful in a minute, you'll see why. And Bethany, which means the house of dates. Also there at Bethany, you might remember uh, Jesus had some very dear friends. They were Mary, Martha, and who? Lazarus, yeah, the one he called back from the dead. Lazarus, come forth. So this morning, as we launch into this gospel account of Mark, I, I just pray the Lord would just speak to our hearts, and he would even take some ancient texts, some maybe familiar stories, and maybe say something new and precious to your heart, something convicting that he might bring change. The first point, you don't even have a blank to fill in today. I never preach like this, but I just thought, you know what, I'm going to do that for you. I was preaching revival the last two weeks and hadn't had screens. I've really missed them, but I thought, you know what, I'm just not going to even, I'm going to write some notes and just let you listen and you can just fill in things if that's good for you. But there in your notes you go, you see that it's apparent from this brief account of Jesus that certain arrangements, pre-arrangements had been made to go into Jerusalem. And, and we read this story a lot at the Christmas time. But it starts off there, kind of in unique fashion. Just look there in, in verse 1. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. And as soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it and he'll return it soon. Now let me just stop there. I think it's interesting about Jesus. He didn't even have a house. Jesus had to bury, they buried a tomb to bury Jesus because he didn't need it but for three days. And here he buries somebody's donkey, he buries a colt. It's just amazing how, you know, he just goes through this life with not much attached to him. He's just in a singular fashion. He's got his mission turned toward the cross, thinking about us. And yet, for this scripture, he talks about that he gets a coat, he gets a donkey. But move on with me in this passage, verse 4. The two disciples left and found the coat standing in the street tied outside the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, What are you doing untying that coat? Now, I think that would get my attention too. If you were in my yard untying my dog or my coat, I'd be like, Man, what are you doing? You're fixing to rip me off. And they said what Jesus had told them to say, that they were permitted to take it. And then they brought the coat to Jesus and he threw their garments over it. And he sat on it. Now, this is kind of a fascinating thing, but basically, you have to really appreciate or understand the Old Testament to see what he set up here. There is a passage there in Scripture, write it in today, Zechariah 9 9. And this passage is a prophecy that's fulfilled here. And that's what happens so many times in New Testament passages. We see something that an old prophet prophesied hundreds, thousands of years before. And it comes to bear. Listen to what it says. Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble. He's riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's coat. So Jesus had made arrangements to even come into the city, to the holy city, to Jerusalem, on a donkey. 
Now, what's amazing about this donkey, I even see some of the gospel story in this, is that in Exodus chapter 13, if you read there, the first coat had to be redeemed. And that whole redemption word is a Jesus word. When I think about Christ shed his blood, they, they had to bite back by the blood of the lamb, the, the first coat, or they had to break its neck and kill it. Exodus 13, 13, I think it's the passage. And here Christ just gives up his life. The other thing is the donkey had to be released. Now this is interesting. All these writers write about that he sits on a donkey that's never been ridden. And I don't know if you've ever been western for a moment or you've gone to a dude's ranch or you went to somebody's house or you rode a horse. You're like, Pastor, I rode on the carousel. That doesn't count. Especially if you fell off of that. You're saying, oh, I went to a birthday party one time and somebody had a little coat running around in circles. That doesn't count. If you've ever ridden a horse that was wild, it can be extremely interesting. And this is a coat that had never been bridled. And yet the Bible says that Jesus sat on this thing and he went into the holy city. So it had to surrender to him. We have to do that. And then the donkey had to be ruled here. Because this, this donkey, I'm thinking, you know, there'd been a fascinating story. And Jesus uh, mounted the donkey and the donkey threw Jesus off. That wouldn't have been a very good scene. And this donkey just submitted itself do we have to do that when jesus christ comes to invade we invite him to take control of our life to be the lord of our life we have to surrender and submit and are we not like a wild coat wild unbridled worn our way and so many times even as we grow in christ there's still areas that the Lord has a hard time maybe getting our attention. So I think this donkey is very fascinating. But listen to this. I, as I was researching this, I ended up finding a lot more than I ever dreamed. I thought it was fascinating about the Jewish calendar. So listen to this. Uh, this great scholar named Skip that I found on the West Coast years ago, I, I love reading him. He has this phenomenal Hebrew mind. But listen to this. He says, when we get to the Gospel of Luke, because it's going to be a while there, he says Jesus is on a donkey, he's going to the Mount of Olives, and he holds Jerusalem accountable for having known this particular day in which Christ would come into the city. In the Jewish calendar, there's the month called Nisan. Now, when you say Nisan, you go, Jesus had a Nisan. I didn't know they were around then. No, I'm not talking about the car, okay? But here, it's the 10th of Nisan. It was on the Jewish calendar. And on that day, they selected a lamb from the flock of their own to make personal sacrifice. And this uh, historian goes on to say, it's fascinating, that they should have known, especially the day that the things that would come about to bring peace is Jesus would go into the holy city. And then he uh, parallels that. He turns it over and he flips it over to Daniel 9 about Daniel's 70 weeks and they're determined upon the people to finish out this holy transgression. But listen to this. This other guy, this guy named Anderson goes, according to the calendar, you'd be able to count the exact day from the going forth of the commandment, the edit to restore and to build, rebuild the city of Jerusalem, which was given on March 14th, 445 bc these guys are so much smarter than me and this uh, persian monarch during this time would count 483 years to the day to the exact day that the messiah would come and show up in jerusalem so then you got to remember their calendars a little different than it was today they went on a, a lunar calendar versus our solar calendar but listen to this daniel 70 weeks starting march 14th 4 
445. And some of you are going, you're going to way too much detail, but there's some of you that love this kind of stuff. He competed at Daniel's 70 weeks here, went forth to restore and build Jerusalem, taking 483 years, which is exactly, listen to this, 173,880 days. And you're going, now, why are you telling us all this? Because as he does this, it hits like on the exact day that Jesus should have come in, that blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna! Man, they were declaring this king. Now, they were excited about this king coming, but they thought this king was going to come and overthrow the government, and it would be a new political power. But Jesus came to usher in a spiritual kingdom that he rules for eternity. And the church said... Amen. I, I love this. So blessed is he. And that Hosanna, and, and, and Caitlin will sing about this at the end of the service today. I love that song, Hosanna. And it just means, save us now. In your worship, God, I just circle that. Hosanna, blessed are you. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. It's just a declaration of praise when we say Hosanna. I, I love that. This messy, here it is. It's a, it's a messianic cry of salvation. And you can link this over to, if you want to write down, Psalm 118. Listen to this. See, the Old Testament and the New Testament, they complete. They're together. They don't contradict. Listen to the Psalmist 118.22. The stone which the builders rejected had become the chief cornerstone. Verse 24. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And these are the very words that the people cried out. On that day is Jesus mounted and set upon that donkey coming into the holy city of Jerusalem you know I think it's one of the Gaither things they've got that that song Jerusalem I think the hoppers or somebody made it popular but I, but I got to tell you it's it, it's those songs are great but they really don't do it justice because to be in that holy city that one day when we come to the new Jerusalem, it's, it's the city of God. And yet God had sent out invitations and he had been sending the prophets to proclaim the kingdom of God. And so many rejected it in his day. And yet there was a band of followers that took him at his word. And there were others that followed him and were healed by him and restored by him and raised by him. And the movement of Christ began in such a powerful way that continues for all eternity. Praise God. But Jesus was inspecting that city as he comes in and it's just fascinating to me here but look look what he finds this this is what's really kind of crazy here in chapter 11 move on down so we're seeing this praise god the blessings here look down at verse 12 jesus curses the fig tree now i, I don't know how many of you have have ever had a fig tree anybody ever had a fig tree besides me R raise your hand if you've had a fig tree okay so there's about five of us know what i'm fixing to talk about figs are uh and, and, and they're really good. Uh, back, used to, I, I would go to Miss Cheryl's office, and she goes, do you, would you like a Fig Newton? I go, no, I'd like three. And, and I like Fig Newtons. But, but I got to tell you, figs I cannot stand. Because as a kid, my job was to pick figs out of our fig tree in the backyard. It was a big tree. These, these things can go 15, 20 foot high, 20, 30 foot wide. They're, they're really, they can be bushes or they can be really big trees and i would go out and pick figs and and figs are extremely sticky and you pick them and it's it just kind of gross and my mom my mom that was killed when i was nine years old she used to love to make fig preserves and she'd go keith here i want you to take this bucket and i want you to go out in the backyard and i want you to pick some figs 
And, and, and I, I've repented. And, and I can remember because I had an attitude. Like, I don't want to pick figs. They're like nasty birds are out there. It's like, it's gross. And I'd go out there and pick them. And she would be so happy. And I can, I, I can and in my mind, I'm just like a seven, eight-year-old kid. I can see her cooking those figs and making fig preserves. And she would give fig preserves to people. And we would have fig preserves. And some of you are like, oh, man, do you have any left over? Well, you wouldn't want them. That was like, you know, a long time ago. They would be uh, nasty. But, but figs. Here in this thing, Jesus comes up and he, he curses a fig tree. And you're saying, well, why is Jesus picking on nature? Well, it, it's fascinating here because let's just look down here and let's see what it says. The next morning, in verse 12, they were leaving Bethany. Jesus was hungry. See, Jesus was completely human, completely God. He's physical. He has an appetite. He's hungry, okay? Just circle the word hungry in your Bible. He noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off, so he went over to see if he'd find any figs. He's thinking a meal, something to eat. This is going to be good. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. And then Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. Now, on figs, there's, uh, sometimes there's three seasons of figs. Sometimes a fig tree can produce up to even three times a year. So, I mean, it's a big deal. And Jesus is inspecting this fig tree. And even if it didn't have fruit, it should at least, you know, be very leafy and healthy. And then it should have produced something, but it didn't. And it was like Israel. He compares the figs so many times to Israel. And Israel is, has produced, is producing no fruit. Israel is, is barren. And this fig tree is barren. So, so Jesus curses this tree. And we'll, we'll come back to this tree in a minute. But it's like it, it wasn't fulfilling what God had for it. And so it, it's just it's amazing to me here as I look at this. And so this is the first time that Jesus really pronounces judgment and condemnation on, on a scene. He actually uh, condemns, he, he judges that unbarren, that unfruitful. Here, let's link it over to John 15. Jesus says, you will bear a little fruit in my name. That's not what it says. Says you should go and you should bear much fruit. A disciple is to produce fruit in Jesus Christ. As Christ abides in us and we abide in Him, we link up. We're to be fruitful. So as Christians, we should be inspectors. We should inspect, not to judge people, not to condemn people, but we should go. Man, is there an evidence of Christ working in your life? Is there fruit being produced in you? And, and this fig tree, to go back to it, man, it was not doing anything, and so he, he curses the thing. And so it just it makes me think here about how important fruit is to Jesus because this one begins to weather. But, but I, I want to ask you this. How we produce fruit, one way is how we love one another, how we care for one another. That Not that we get the trappings of religious activity, but we get the, the con consummation, we get consumed with the presence and the power of Jesus working in our hearts. We don't pretend to worship, but we worship from the heart in spirit and in truth. It's critical that we do these things. We, we don't act like we're saved in here and then live like the world or the devil when we leave here. And sometimes over the years, people say, well, man, do you someone's oh, do you know them? Like, yeah, I know them. Man, they go to our church. They go, oh, man, you should see them outside the church. Well, no, man, they like stand on the front row. They lift their hands high. They love God. Well, I'm glad they love God on Sunday, man. They're a crook on Tuesday. Or, man, they're a son of a gun on Thursday. Like, man, they're not very nice. So Jesus wants us to... to so here'd be the question if, if you just took notes. Is there any real fruit in my life? 
Ask the people close to you, do you see an evidence of Christ in my life? Does there seem to be the supernatural work of God being produced in me and through me? I, I would say this. This is a kingdom thought. Fruit is always the evidence of genuine salvation. When we have genuine salvation that will carry us to heaven, not that it's works, least any man should boast it's by the grace of god that we're saved amen? amen but it will evidence itself in fruit uh listen to this just write these three down these are helpful and i didn't i didn't give you notes but some of you like to write stuff and you show me your worship guides and some of you just take it all cerebral and whatever okay number one a changed life the evidence of a change uh the evidence of fruit in your life is a changed life i just put the scripture second corinthians 5 17 the next one is a vibrant witness when christ is working the holy spirit is free to flow in rome there's a vibrant testimony for christ and the third there's the evidence of an inward life there's an inward soul hunger there's an inward intake there's an inward desire for the things of the kingdom i remember when i came to christ before that i wasn't even religious at best uh, there's a little season that as I got older that I'd go to the church in the pines on Lake Martin just to kind of drop off and that and God was beginning to work in my heart then but it, for the most part there was no inward life and then when Christ changed me there got this new appetite these new desires that were not from the world not from the flesh they were from God and it was an evidence to me that God was alive in me that God was working in me that God had given me a, a hunger for the holiness of christ do you have that in your life church do you have that desire just to love god's word just to saturate just to obey it just to share it just to live it just to pray just to worship just to be a little more like christ than you were yesterday or last year lord we we want to bear fruit but so there's the honor there's the hunger look at this third one here if, if you look there at verse 15 now he moves into a holiness movement and, and this is one of the things I love as a Christ follower, the holiness of God, because without holiness, no one sees the Lord, says Peter. And, and listen to what he says there, verse 15. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple, and he began to drive out people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. Now, I'm going to stop right there. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn years ago that many congregations sing, traditional congregations. Gentle Jesus, gentle and mild, and he is. But when I read this scripture, this is not the little gentle baby Jesus boy. Do I have a witness? I mean, if Jesus came in here today and we were prostituting his temple and we were doing wrong and Jesus just started flipping over the chairs and let's say we were having tables in here and he started throwing over the table, you'd go, there's gentle Jesus just showed up. <laughs> no, I, I think Jesus, I think he flexed his muscles. I think he raised his voice and yet he sinned not because they had made a mockery of the temple. They, they were going, the, the holiness. And, and Jesus, this, this one verse that, that I love, look down there. The scriptures declare, verse 17, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. I saved body life for today because this is where I got the concept 22 years ago. Jesus said, my house will be a house of fried chicken till I come again. No, he's it. He said, my house in the 90s, my house will be a house of aerobics. 
He did not. My house will be a house of whatever. No, he didn't. He said, my house will be a house of prayer. And so many times the house of God is not a house of prayer. So one of the ways that I figured, we, we've had prayer meetings, we've had different venues, we've had prayer conferences, we've, done, we've had kids' prayer conferences, adult prayer conferences. We, we do a lot of avenues in prayer. But I thought this is one way that the body of Christ can fulfill this scripture, that he can look at his house and go, my house at Ryan Road is a house of prayer. And the church said, and, I invite, and, and over the years, people have said, that is the weirdest thing. I've had people look me in the face and go, I started coming to that church 10, 15, 20 years ago, whatever, and said, you do that body life. Weird. I go, really? And, and before, and I'm offended, and I want to respond to them, and then they'll make this comment. However, I think it is the most biblical thing we do as a church. It's powerful. People have been saved during body life. People have been healed during body life. People have gotten jobs during body life. People have gotten encouraged. People have been prophesied over. People have had scripture shared over them. I mean, prayers, intercession, it's just the house of God. So here Jesus says, this, this is what my house is. But look what I wrote in these notes. The leaders were not praying. They were praying on. They were taking advantage of the people. And look what they were doing. This, this is what's amazing. So he's, he's flipping over the house. And yet they've made this a, a, a house of, of, of commerce. And so then they start doing all these different acts. And there wasn't an app for that. They started like selling animals. And they started because these people, some of them had, take care, had, had a long journey to get into Jerusalem. And they couldn't bring animals. So when they got there, they would buy animals. And the really poor, they, they would uh, buy doves. And there was like at least 80,000 people. They said in that Jerusalem during that time, there were probably 2 million people. But 80,000 people would begin to, to move in. That's like a big SEC football game. I mean, 80,000 people. You're talking crazy. And it involved the sacrifice of animals. And, and there was a lot of activity. And, there was a, and yet, there was these people, they, they set it up for convenience. And they started doing these deals. But they were ripping people off in the temple. I mean, like... Uh, you know, the poor would buy the doves. There was a shekel of the sanctuary that you can read about. All these things, and they were taking shortcuts. The priests and different ones would be running through the temple. And Jesus comes in, and he's seeing that, man, my house is, has lost its reverence. My house has lost its focus. And, and Jesus is indignant, and he gets angered, and, and, and he deals with these people like, what's going on? Because they, they had to have a temple currency. And in that process, they would have the money changers in the temple, and they would begin to charge these fees and, 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 and these traders, and, and they would make an excessive profit. And, and, and here worse, they, they are, most of them were already poor. They, they didn't have any extra to give. They just, they just ripped them off. But this continual thing went on, and Jesus addresses it. And that's why today you'll see so many times like, we, we don't want to make our church a, a marketplace. And so I'll just go ahead and get on the cuff here. That's why over the years people have asked me, Pastor, I have a business on the side. Could I set up a table out in the foyer? Nice people. I've met many thousands of nice people in our church in 22 years. But my answer has always been and always will be no. We, we just are not going to sell stuff out here. And, and, and you said, but pastor, it's for my income and I'll give a tithe of it. Praise God. Do it down at Walmart. But we're not going to make the house of God a place to do that. And the church said, it's, it's just healthy for the church. And that's what they're doing because they'd lost, their, they'd lost their focus. It became a place of business. I hear that about large churches sometimes. Oh, so-and-so goes to so-and-so church. 
oh man that's a great church and the pastor happens to be a friend of mine or might be or might not or i pray for him i go yeah they go yeah but you know why people go there i go i don't know why they go because they do business it's a house of commerce and i think jesus go and i'm not saying that was their desire that's just what some people made it we want to make this a house of prayer we want to make this a house of healing we want to make this a house of refuge would you agree church that's the house of jesus so you're saying man you're kind of fired up about this and here's the line the tribe of judah and he's talking about my house is a is a house of prayer uh, uh, another verse would be i think i wrote it in your notes isaiah 56 7 but it's uh the the house here the temple it had become man-centered it was no longer god-centered and i would say today for a contemporary word if we're not careful as much as we love the church of jesus christ the living christ his church it can become less than what god created it to be now he dwells in a temple not made with hands he he dwells in our hearts but yet there should still be reverence in the house of god amen a amen this is God's house. We love his house. We, we love his people. We love to sing his praises, but he, he comes to dwell in us. We want to worship him. We want to honor him in, in the place, and we want to approach him. And, uh, and yet, uh, it goes on to say they, they made it a den of thieves. They they'd made it so much less than what Jesus had set up for. They, they felt good about their sin. Uh, oh, I'll go back to this. The dove that cost a dollar for the poor person, let's say they would elevate the cost to $25. I, I would say that's extortion. What would you say? <laughs> I mean, it was pretty bad. And I don't know what they were charging for lambs. I mean, it was probably just ridiculous. And people would buy that because they said, man, we've got to make a sacrifice to the Lord. And yet, I love what the Scripture says. Once and for all, Jesus Christ made sacrifice, made perpetuation for our sin. Once and for all. We'll never have to make sacrifice again because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Isn't that great news, church? We don't have to go to a money changer. Now, I understood, I, I can see the convenience factor because it was at that point that people needed to change to get in a temple currency to come in. It's just they did it inside and, and, and it just became a zoo and, and I can't imagine that really anything really kingdom happened, but it, it, it was messing them up. So Jesus says, this is what I want you to do. I want, I want you to worship me. I want you to have faith in me. But let, let's keep going here because all these things. So he, look at verse 20. As the next morning as they passed by the fig tree he had cursed, the disciples noticed it, and it had withered from its roots, or from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day, and he exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed, it's now withered, and it's died and then Jesus said to his disciples, Have faith in God. I tell you the truth. You can say to this mountain, May you be lifted up, thrown into the sea, and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything, and if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. But when you are praying first, forgive anyone you're holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins also. And he goes, he goes this thing, it's not like this name it and claim it kind of thing, but he says, if there's mountains in your life, and we all have mountains, and they oppose your faith, move in to me. Remove the obstacles from your life and press into my heart. Press in to knowing me. And, and, and then he, he gives this line here, and we could do a whole message on this word, and I have preached messages on it, forgiveness. He tells us to forgive one another. Hold not grudges against one another as we come into the house, as we do life with one another. He wants us to have freedom here. The, the great hindrance to having faith in God the great hindrance to having faith in God is the thing that our small group 
worked on Wednesday night. We did a whole first session for the semester, and the topic was pride. And Jesus says, our pride will keep us from the kingdom. Our pride will keep us blocked in fellowship with God. So if we've got unforgiveness, why don't we have unforgiveness? Our pride's keeping us from forgiving our offender, but we want our Heavenly Father to forgive us. I think it would go on to say this, because he's wanting us. Jesus would go, I gave you a prayer. And could we say the Lord's Prayer? Do you know the Lord's Prayer? Let's say the Lord's Prayer together. And it even addresses this. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Come on, say it with me. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Forgive our trespassers? No, Jesus, you must have been kidding. You must have been having a bad day. No, I don't want to forgive them. Okay, then I don't forgive you. I mean, this forgiveness thing is so serious to King Jesus. It always has been and it always will be. And Jesus wants us to make it right, to forgive those who come against us, that we get vertically right with him, forgiven by a holy God of our sin through the blood of Christ. But then horizontally, we choose to extend forgiveness through the power of the Holy Spirit to forgive those that have offended us, those that have sinned against us, that we might know freedom that April sang about, that we might know the peace of Christ, and that the peace of Christ might rule in our hearts. God, thank you for the truth. The unwillingness to forgive and hold grudges forfeits the mercy of God. God, we want your mercy. I mean, you know, we come to Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. We stay in Christ. We're sustained in Christ by God. Be merciful to me. Move to the last section quickly. Verse 27. Then he begins to be extremely honest. Jesus is confronted by a delegation of religious leaders and of the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas and, and different ones. And this imposing delegation comes against Jesus because they're, they're thinking here again, they're thinking that they're going to trap him. But look down there quickly, verse 27. Again, they enter, enter Jerusalem. As Jesus was walking to the temple area, the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, the elders came up to him. They demanded, by what authority... Are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right to do them? They were indignant. They were ticked off at Jesus. Verse 29. Here it is there. Words are read. I tell you by what authority I do these things if you answer one question. Man, Jesus is so sharp. He's like, I'll answer your question, but you answer mine. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven or was it merely human? Answer me. They talked it over among themselves, and they say if, it was from, if we say it's from heaven, he will ask, why didn't we believe John? But do we dare say it was merely human? For they were afraid of what the people would do because everyone believed that John was a prophet. So they finally replied, we don't know. And then look what Jesus responds with. Then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. See, folks, Jesus is authority. <laughs> Jesus is supreme. Jesus is ruler of all. And here they're trying to come against him. They're trying to trap him. But yet Christ is so far superior. And he's come to do his father's will. 
And he's called us to do his will. So what we're going to do now, I, I just want to wrap this up this morning. The king is coming. The king is here. And Caitlin's going to come, and in a few moments she's going to sing. But what I was thinking is that today I want to make a clear call to discipleship. I want to make a clear call to salvation. Possibly there's somebody today that maybe doubts or they wonder or they came in today and they're not sure, or they've never cried out to Jesus Christ. So I just want to lead you through a short exercise, and then we'll close out standing together a powerful anthem, a powerful song of worship. Bow your heads with me. Would you do that? Did you know that the king is passing by, even right now as we gather in this living room? He's here to receive all that will come to him in faith. He's here to restore any that would come home. You've wandered away from the grace and the riches of Christ. And God's maybe speaking to you this morning, come home. He's here to refresh the weary, the downtrodden, the broken, those that are tired, they need help. He's here to reward the faithful. You've been faithful to the cause of Christ. He's here to honor you and to bless you. He's here to revive those that are hungry and they want more than they had when they came in. But He is here. And I ask you, friend, if you've never cried out to this Jesus and said, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm undone. I believe that you lived and you died and you came for me and that you rose from the dead. And this morning I just turn, I repent from my sin. And I turn to you, Jesus. I look to you to be my Savior. I want to follow you as my Master. I want you to be the Lord of my life. Holy Spirit, fill me right now. Lead me on the path, shouting, Hosanna in the highest. Save me now. You're my God. You're my King. Oh, friend. If you made that prayer today, let me know. Let me know. Go out with the peace of Christ. Amen.